one of the worst abuses of legislative power is the delegation of authority to executive agencies which then act arbitrarily and go way beyond what legislators intended. And this is a very gray area of law in which administrators of agencies like the DEA can arbitrarily put something in drug schedules and assume the power of legislators to do that, which was probably not the intent of Congress. And the intent of Congress certainly seems to be that the administrators of these agencies were supposed to take into account expert opinion in making these classifications, and they've never done that. Never, ever. There is the possibility that something is beginning to happen with psychedelics in this culture and that MDMA is the focus of a, of a movement. It's very important to bear in mind that we are not dealing with rational people and with rational thinking. And there is no amount of argu rational argument that is going to change anybody's minds. Welcome to a Voices of Esalen Archive Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today our episode centers on a talk given at Esalen in 1985 by Dr. Andrew Weil. You may know Dr. Andrew Weil as a prominent figure and trailblazer in the field of integrative medicine, a school of thought which combines conventional medical practices with alternative and complementary therapies such as herbal medicine, acupuncture, and mind-body techniques. All of this, of course, used to be rather fringe, and Esalen in the mid-1980s still was a bit fringe too. Nowadays, things like acupuncture and herbal medicine raise nary an eyebrow, and let's admit it, Esalen is pretty mainstream too. But here, Dr. Weil speaks about various drugs and psychedelics, as well as the cultural attitudes attached to them. Weil, to this point, had had a curious relationship with psychedelics, to say the least. In the early 1960s, while a student at Harvard, he'd observed the infamous Harvard psilocybin experiments conducted by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, where those professors gave uh, mushrooms to willing graduate students, and uh, Dr. Weil reported on them in the Harvard newspaper, the Harvard Crimson at the time, ultimately leading to the academic downfall and subsequent dismissal of Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. Later in life, Weil would connect with Alpert, who had by then assumed the moniker of Ramdas, and Weil would finally taste the forbidden fruit, and he would really come around in terms of psychedelics. In this talk, however, which again was given in 1985, Weil speaks a great deal about the drug MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, which on June 1st of that very year was made illegal and classified as a Schedule One substance. MDMA had been widely used as a therapy drug, but in the early 1980s, it also had become quite popular in dance subcultures, particularly in the gay communities, most notably in Dallas, Texas. And of course, in the mid-1980s, Ronald Reagan's war on drugs was a raging, and it provided the perfect storm for MDMA to be made unlawful. So given all this context, it's both interesting and informative to hear while the former psychedelic whistleblower turned hippie physician speak at length and quite intelligently about MDMA to an audience which we can only assume was rather sympathetic to MDMA's reason for being at that very time. While also addresses a host of other topics, including whether or not marijuana causes brain damage, peyote, how DEA scheduling actually works, the so-called new physics, how belief interacts with the physical mechanisms of the body, hypnotherapy, firewalking, he really gets into firewalking, coffee, chocolate, and much, much more. So, with no further ado, let's enjoy this 1985 talk at Esalen by Dr. Andrew Weil. It's good to see you all. I apologize for not having been at previous conferences of this sort, and we'll come to all in the future. <laughs> uh, the most frequent question I've been asked in the past 
month, month and a half, two months, is have you ever heard of a drug or <laughs> do you know anything about this new drug? <laughs> uh, I hope we are not condemned to repeating history because history in this area is not very inspiring. Uh, and I think there are lessons to be learned from it. It's very easy in this group or in amongst people that we use psychedelic substances with to think that all the world uses these and is interested in them and shares our values. But let me just tell you a conversation that I had with my parents. Uh, <laughs> 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 when, when the first, when the first uh, news reports happened on uh, national television, they called up and uh, my father, they were both on the phone, and my father said, have you heard of this new drug that these damn psychiatrists are using now? It's, it's called MDMA, and my mother chimed in, it's terrible, it's just terrible. <laughs> now this is, you know, there are a lot of people out there like that, and you know, these are my parents, they know what I do, and they've known that for a long time, and when I, after I had done uh, marijuana studies in the late 1960s, and they had been appearing in a number of scientific journals, there was quite a long period for years afterwards when ever my mother wrote me a letter, enclosed in it without any comment in the letter, would be a clipping from some newspaper about f new findings showing that marijuana causes brain damage. This was never discussed with me. It was always just slipped in the letter. I refrained, I think, ver in a very, uh, I think I, I feel quite uh, noble about having never enclosed clippings in my letters to her about the evils of coffee, which have been, <laughs> which have also been in the press of late. She is a hardcore coffee addict. Uh, we never talk about that. Her, she makes very strong coffee. She aggressively pushes it upon people. She, ha she has sucked other people into the use of that substance, including my father, and friends. One friend of mine in Tucson, who, when they were out to visit and drank her coffee, said that it was so strong it made him crazy for the entire day. It, it is, I think it makes her crazy as well, it's a, but we do not discuss this. But they are staunch Reagan supporters, and they represent certain attitudes in America. Now, that I thought that the initial reports on television were quite favorable to MDMA. Uh, nonetheless, this was the reaction. You know, it's terrible, it's terrible, and these damn psychiatrists added again, giving us a new drug menace. Human beings are, are not, uh, do not have a good record on tolerance of other people's activities, and the areas in which human intolerance seems to be harshest are in those activities and concerning those substances that have to do with pleasure. As I wrote in Chocolate to Morphine, the, uh, the areas of human activity around which taboos crystallize most are food, sex, and drugs. I think the ones to do with food are, are probably the worst, and the ones about which we are least conscious, uh, and about which we discuss, which is least discussed. And it's an area in which emotional bias distorts fact even more than, than writings and discussions about sex and drugs. And maybe one day we will be able to look at that squarely in the face. You know, why is it that eating insects is disgusting to us, whereas we relish raw oysters, for example? I mean, that's just one question I would ask you. There is more nonsense written about food and nutrition and what's good and what's bad than in any other area that I see. But it's all the same quality. And the theme that runs through it is that what we do is good and what everybody else does is bad. And so the, the, in the area of drugs, it's other people's drugs that have to be stamped out and stopped. Let me just read you. I, this just came in the mail to me, and it's something that I'm, I was unfamiliar with. This was uh, Jack Schaefer, who wrote the uh, Psychology Today article about MDMA, just sent this to me in the mail. He found it, and he was in an old bookstore. And it's a, this is a magazine called Pick, which was a photo news magazine. And this is December 8, 1942. 
it has a picture of, I don't know whether any of you remember the comedian Fred Allen. He's on the cover looking younger than I've ever seen him, wearing boxing gloves, and he's sticking his tongue out at a mask of Hitler. And uh, the, the headline up here is, A New Dope Menace Threatens U.S. And the New Dope Menace is peyote. This is an article written by an MD, and just let me read you a little of this, because you could change the name and it could be anything, anything over the years. There had been a movement to stop peyote that started in the 1920s, which in the 1920s was mounted mostly by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. By 1942, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was on the side of the Indians. Now, this is an interesting case because it's the only historical example that I know of in which a, a subculture has successfully resisted the attempts of the dominant culture to stamp out its, its drug use. And I think there's something interesting to be learned there as to how they were able to do that. I know of no other example where that's been true. And usually, especially when, the, when the, the subculture's use is something other than alcohol, which is used by the dominant culture, the outcome is almost always that the alcohol drinkers win and succeed in, uh, in stamping out the other. So at this, in, in the 1920s, the arguments, I have a collection of um, pamphlets that were authored by the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the 20s uh, against peyote. And the themes that run through that are that peyote makes Indian men run out and axe helpless white settlers to death and makes Indian women rip off their clothes in sexual frenzies. We do not hear this in 1942, but listen to this. Unfortunately, all efforts to stop the distribution and sale of peyote come up against the no doubt well-meaning, but I am convinced, misguided tendencies of certain eminent gentlemen toward the ancient habits of a group of semi-Christian Indians. <laughs> the content, he then names a list of anthropologists and academics who are supporting this evil vice. The contention of, the, of this group is that since peyote plays an important part in a religious ceremony of the half-Christian Indians, corresponding roughly to the use of wine in communion, the government should refuse to prohibit its use for fear of outraging Indian sentiments and destroying ancient cultural practices. Not very ancient, by the way. I mean, the use of peyote in North America date, dated back at this point less than 100 years since its introduction from Mexico. They point out that peyote is mild in effect as drugs go, apparently is not habit-forming, and produces no violent symptoms in the user. However, they admit that it does result in hallucinations, the typical escape quality of all drugs, and that mentally weak persons would be seriously harmed by addiction. Obviously, the drug addict is mentally weak to begin with, so this exception carries little weight. Further, my own experience proves that peyote is as dangerous as any of the better-known drugs. He quotes the, the Indian commissioner and te who testified, saying, it operates on the centers of vision in the, of the brain and produces images of beautiful colors and forms. You see the happy hunting grounds. You may see heaven, you may see angels, and so on, unquote. However this may be, it is a fact that all too often peyote sends its users to the happy hunting grounds. The sad part of it all is that the victims are frequently innocent children or patients in the advanced stages of chronic disease who are taken out of hospitals or away from their physicians to shacks where peyote is forced upon them. In such, in such cases, the peyote peddler frequently stays for hours or days and collects contributions for, from all present. Several peyote deaths in Nevada have caused a local scandal, but these deaths are few in number compared with those that have been taking place elsewhere for years. In intoxicating doses, breathing becomes shallow and more rapid. There is an occasional deep spasmodic breath. There may be a painful feeling of suffocation. In the stage of intoxication, there is a tendency to lie down, though no inclination to sleep. The pupils are widely dilated and have a sluggish reaction to light. There is a muscular incoordination, which is especially manifested in walking. The actual intoxication lasts about 12 hours. That such a powerful narcotic could only bring catastrophe to patients in the terminal stages of disease is shown by the reports of recent deaths. 
One of the most important pieces of evidence against the use of peyote was the production of synthetic insanity last year by a well-known British scientist, Dr. G.T. Stockings of the War Warlingham Park Hospital in Surrey, Eng England. This scientist stated the mental changes produced are of an almost exactly similar nature to those found in insane patients. These changes included hallucinations of all senses, delusions, transformations of personality, thought disorders, and abnormalities of conduct and disordered perceptions of time and space. There are wonderful pictures scattered through here that have very little to do with anything. There's a picture of a house, for example, <laughs> and it says, in this house, several people died after a peyote orgy. Uh, there's also a wonderful picture of an Indian lying on the ground. It says, Indian sleeping off effects of peyote debauch is common sight in an area where drugs popularity is spreading. I've often seen Indians in this position, <laughs> and I assure you that what they are sleeping off is not peyote. <laughs> it is, however, a drug. Now, I think, you know, this is interesting stuff to listen to because, as I said, you could change the words and it could be any drug. And also, a lot of what's written there is accurate. You know, I, I don't argue against those effects that are described. It's the significance attached to them. It's a negative significance, a negative way of describing something. And the comparison to insanity is very clear there. All of the, the testimony that I have seen against MDMA is very much the same. They're negative ways of describing effects that are quite real. I don't argue with the descriptions. It's just the significance to be attached to them. And the problem at root is that the argument is against other people's drugs. And it is rooted in fear. And this is not a rational matter. When I began to study marijuana almost 20 years ago, I thought very naively that marijuana was going to be legalized within three years. It seemed to me that all that was necessary to do was to correct the misinformation upon which the laws were based. And it was simply a matter of acquainting people with the truths and the facts. I began to be asked to testify in front of legislators and talk to doctors and scientists, and I very quickly found out that that's not the way it worked. That people hear what they want to hear, and they don't hear what they don't want to hear. And this is not a matter of rational argument. People have deep, vested, emotional deep emotional investments in not eating insects and in eating oysters, just as they have deep emotional in investments in drinking alcohol and coffee and not, real, not seeing that tobacco is the most addictive and dangerous of all drugs, that alcohol is the only drug that releases crime and violence quite regularly, that coffee is a powerful psychoactive drug that can be addicting and make people truly crazy. I mean, these are all facts, but we have a great cultural investment in not looking at that and an equal cultural investment in seeing other people's drugs in a bad light. So it's very important to bear in mind that we are not dealing with rational people and with rational thinking. And there is no amount of argue, rational argument that is going to change anybody's minds. The only level on which change can be brought about is to make people not afraid. And by, do, by showing them or acting in ways that makes it difficult for them to see users of psychedelics as other people, that is the only level at which change will come about. And especially if, if it is possible to point out commonalities between our experiences and their experiences. At the time that I first began doing public speaking about marijuana, in, this was in 1970, before I had written The Natural Mind, I got invited to some very strange places, I thought, where I'd never been before. And I went to them with great apprehension. I, I was a, an Easterner. I came from the Northeast. I was born in Philadelphia and went to school in Boston. And I had a lot of Eastern prejudice about that region of the country being the most enlightened area of the country and the most rational and so forth. For example, the state of Missouri got hold of me and began trucking me around to rural areas of Missouri to talk to groups of 
school teachers uh, and legislators and community leaders about marijuana and drugs. And I went there thinking I was going into the lion's den. To my amazement, I found that people there were much more receptive to what I had to say than people in the East. And in particular, because I was able to talk about other kinds of altered states of consciousness. And they were able to connect it up with revival meetings, which was very common in their experience. And once people could see that there was a connection, some commonality between people going into other states of consciousness at revival meetings and people seeking experiences of that kind in marijuana, they weren't as threatened. It was, not, it was not as foreign. They were not so much other people. And that made it possible for them to relax a little bit and then listen to the, to the rational side of things. And I found that again and again. And often, sometimes, people in the most rural areas of the country, I find more receptive to hearing about altered states of consciousness and how everybody seeks them out than I do in, in intellectual areas of cities. I think that's just interesting to look at. There, I there is the possibility that something is beginning to happen with psychedelics in this culture, and that MDA, MDMA is the focus of a, of a movement. I mean, it is, after all, the first time that there has been a legal challenge to an arbitrary DEA scheduling of something. And whatever the outcome of that, that fact is, is wonderful. You know, it's just great to, to do that. And I think the DEA is, uh, is, is in, uh, was, was very much taken by surprise and didn't like that at all. And it's good for change for them to have that happen to them. You know, one of the worst abuses of, uh, of legislative power is the delegation of authority to executive agencies, which then act arbitrarily and go way beyond what legislators intended. And this is a very gray area of law in which administrators of agencies like the DEA can arbitrarily put something in drug schedules and assume the power of legislators to do that, which was probably not the intent of Congress. And the intent of Congress certainly seems to be that the administrators of these agencies were supposed to take into account expert opinion in making these classifications, <coughs> and they've never done that. Never, ever. The, it's, it's, uh, I once, in my marijuana researches, went back and dug out the congressional record of the passage of the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. Now, this is a law. Look at, look at the amount of problems that saddled our society with for years, up until the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. 33 years that we were saddled with that law, which called, caused untold social disruption. That law was passed in a day and a half in Congress. There were a day and a half of hearings. There, were all, there was only one witness who testified against it. And do you know who that was? That was a representative of the birdseed manufacturer's lobby, which didn't want to have to go to the trouble of sterilizing marijuana seed. The AMA was invited to send a, a, a witness, and they refused to do so. They said that it was not an issue, that there were no therapeutic potential. Nobody from civil liberties organizations did so. Very interesting to see that. This was done quite arbitrarily. No expert opinion was consulted, and that at least was Congress. With the executive agencies, there's nothing. There's no opportunity for input of that process. So I think a lot has been accomplished just in the fact that these legal proceedings have happened, and whatever the outcome of them, that's an, a wonderful precedent to set. The lawyer uh, who has worked on that case, Rick Cotton, who's an old college friend of mine, said on the phone to me a month ago that you know, he said that, I, that he'd never had seen before what I had seen years ago about the irrational nature of the opposition. And he said, you know, that in any, if this were in any other area of the law, the government's case would be laughed out of court, that there's no substance to it, whatever. But because it's drugs and because it's other people's drugs, different sets of rules apply. So it's always, it's always important to remember that.
that this is not a rational process. But there, are great, there is great irrationality that we should try to correct and change. And that has to be done in, in, in different strategies. The organizers of this conference asked me if I would talk some about my own work and an overview of all this. The areas that I work in at the moment, uh, you know, I get, I get asked a lot to talk about drugs, and I still get asked to very strange places. Uh, two weeks ago, I went to a, a section of the country called the Iron Range in northeastern Minnesota. Bob Dylan's hometown, Hibbing, is in that. It's the largest iron ore deposits in the country, and in the 30s was a boom area, and now is very depressed economically, but has a tradition of communism and socialism that goes back to 20, 20, 30 years, and there is a communist radio program, for example, on the radio every Sunday. Well, I spoke at several community colleges back there about drugs and psychedelics, and even there people asked me, have you heard of this new drug? <laughs> Called MDMA. <laughs> right, but they, they had been hearing it on news reports, and uh, they hadn't read my book. I mean, I hope they have since, but they hadn't at the point that I arrived there. And again, I found in that area, even in areas of the country like that, if you put it in the right way and show them that you are not a scary, freaky person, uh, however you look, because I don't, think it's on, I don't think people really react on that level. I think it's on, a, on an intuitive gut level that we respond to each other. I think it's very important to be reassuring and to show by your own example that you are not crazy and not likely to threaten people. And if you do that, people listen to you. And then you can say that, yes, I use this drug, and it's okay, and I get good effects from it. And then they might be, have a different attitude to it. And that's the only level at which we can change, change this, is on direct, person-to-person -person contact at making people realize that we are not other people, that we are like them. And it's very important for us not to conceive of ourselves as other people, which is a, an easy tendency to fall into, you know, that this is some kind of special elite uh, a secret society that we're part of that feeds the process by which we can get defined as other and, and gives energy to the irrational process. My own work mostly, although I get asked a lot to talk about drugs, has to do with healing. And my own interest is in trying to reform the medical profession, which is a big thing to take on. But, but it's going to happen because that's the future. And, and the future will come around and all we have to do is wait. So the University of Arizona Medical School asked me to come there and teach about alternative medicine. I am a lone person there. I feel like a man from Mars often. I don't know many people down there that I can talk to about the things I'm interested in, but they've asked me to give lectures on other systems of medicine and mind-body interactions and placebo effects and drugs, so I'm going to do that. It's an obligation to take on, although it's often not, not fun. I, I, I do not go out of my way to antagonize people. I'm sure I have some enemies down there. But gradually, people call up and ask questions. You know, they want to know something about, you know, this, they have a patient who's been to see an acupuncturist, and what do I know about that? Or somebody who's taking some herb, what do I know about that herb? So I'll just be there and see what happens. I think the, the, the medical profession is blissfully unaware of the change in consciousness that has happened. By the way, it's happened. You know, it's over. The revolution is over. It was over a long time ago. And now we're just waiting for the, the changes to filter down. I, I've been having, I've been very interested in using the analogies of new physics to try to talk to doctors, because above all, doctors like to think of themselves as scientists. And it's important to point out to them that their concept of science is very out of date and has been out of date for over 50 years. One of the problems in doing that is it is very difficult to find a physicist who will support any of that argument. I, I've, I've become so irritated at physicists lately, and I, I hope, you know, maybe, Paul, have you, maybe you know physicists who are more receptive to this kind of stuff, but it's been impossible, for instance, at the University of Arizona to find any physicist who believes in new physics. 
We had, I, I had one come in, you know, and the, the things that they say are quite amazing. I had one come in who said that he thought that all of the paradoxes raised by quantum theory would be resolved in, within 20 years by new research. And he said also that he had an aesthetic commitment to preserve determinism. What's so aesthetic about determinism? I don't see that that is being aesthetic at all. But then I have a, a, a high school friend who's now a professor of mathematics at, at UC Berkeley who writes me very angry letters about my uses of these arguments in my books and says I should stop doing this, that this is detracting from my work and that no one outside of physics can possibly understand physics and that uh, even people with, and he points out that, for instance, that Schrodinger, who was a, uh, was quite committed to Hindu mysticism at the end of his life, made a very clear point of saying that his work, his professional work and his physics had nothing to do with his views of religion and the world. Well, if that's so, that's too bad for Schrodinger. I mean, that, then he had a very incomplete worldview if he was unable to connect his view of physics with his view of religion. Because if you discover truth at some level of reality, there must be analogs of that truth at every level of reality. And it's, if physicists won't take the time and effort to work out the analogous truths in other areas of human life, then, then non-physicists have to start doing it. And it seems to me they're very clear. And in the case of medicine, for example, medicine is operating today from a strictly deterministic, mechanistic model, which denies the reality of the non-physical, which is locked into cause and effect conceptions which are illusory. And it's important to point that out, that those are wrong conceptions, and they're very limiting. And that when you adopt other conceptions, which are consistent with new physics, you open up many more options for treating people. Many, many ways that you can bring about healing. And, and so these are gross limitations. In, in the, my book, Health and Healing, I have a, quite a section on wart cures. And this is a wonderful one to hold up in front of doctors' noses, because it's not an esoteric phenomenon. It's something that happens all over the place. And I think 50% of this population has experienced war magical wart cures. And the only unifying feature is belief, that people believe in some method, and they apply it, and sometimes within 12 hours, a wart that has been there for months vanishes. And no one has ever studied that. It's not taken seriously. I mean, what could be more important than to find out that mechanism? I mean, that's not, not mystical. I mean, it might be wonderful and magical, but it's not mystical, it's studyable. You know, there's a mechanism. How does belief go from the cortex down through the nerves to the immune system, probably, to the wart? I mean, if I were head of the National Cancer Institute, I would put a huge chunk of money into finding out that mechanism. And the fact that, that it doesn't occur to physicians to even study that is an example of what I mean by how damaging conceptual limitations are. In this case, the one that says that things that aren't physical cannot be important variables in determining physical interactions. So it does not occur to anybody to take belief seriously as a variable and to see how it can interact with the physical mechanisms of the body. But anyway, as I say, you know, the, 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 the revolution at the level of the intellect happened. It happened in the first part of the century in physics. And now the ripples of it are beginning to be felt in other areas of life. I sometimes I have the feeling when I walk into the, the medical school building down there, you know, that I, I, I sometimes have a visual image of little ripples arriving <laughs> at the doorstep and that people have no idea what's going to come behind them. <laughs> you know, that they are, they are the forerunners of huge waves that are going to demolish that whole structure. And people working in it are just blissfully unaware of what's coming. But it happened. The, the revolution is over. It happened a long time ago. And now we just have to wait and see the effects. So sometimes when I get discouraged down there about feeling like a man from Mars, I just remind myself that, no, that's the future. And the future will come. 
and those who align themselves with it will be part of it, and those who aren't won't. It's that simple. What is their well, you know, hypnotherapy cycles through um, uh, acceptance and rejection. And at the moment, it's, uh, I think it is more popular outside. It is, it is accepted, but still regarded as weird. And it's weird for the same reasons, of course. Mm -hmm. And yet, it is very popular outside medicine. You know, the, the numbers of people practicing hypnotherapy have increased greatly. The numbers of, pa of patients going to hypnotherapists are at an all-time high. And the results of hypnosis, I think there are more demonstrations of the power to affect physical areas of the body, especially immune function, which is a fascinating one. There's a whole new field that I'm sure some of you are aware of called psychoneuroimmunology, a lot of it being done at Harvard Medical School. For example, one of the experiments that, has been, uh, that is currently being done at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston is demonstrating the power of hypnosis to change delayed hypersensitivity reactions. And in this, you take people who are good hypnotic subjects and you inject under the skin 10 antigens, like tuberculin and fungal antigens. You do it in the left arm and the right arm, and you give the suggestion that there will be no allergic response in the right arm. And 48 hours later, on the left arm, there are big delayed hypersensitivity wheels, and, and there's nothing on the right arm. Same person. That's a very interesting demonstration. And yet, although there's a textbook of psychoneuroimmunology that's been out for five years and a very good annotated bibliography, both of which are in the medical school library at the University of Arizona, the word psychoneuroimmunology was not mentioned last year in the immunology course given to second-year students, and the people who teach that course have never heard of it. You know, so that's interesting. I mean, that's an example of the kind of information gap that exists at the moment. But again, that's the future, and it will, it will catch up. And at some point, the people who haven't heard of it are going to be embarrassed when lay, lay people ask them about it, for example. So all those changes are coming. In my own medical practice, you know, I, I wish there were more people doing this kind of stuff, because uh, I, I get a lot of demands on me, and I can't keep up with it all. But a lot of patients are seeking out professionals and especially MDs, if they can find them, who are open to this and think differently and won't use the most drastic measures of treatment immediately. And one of the great complaints with medicine is that you know, a lot of its me methods are valid in their place, but their place is as last resorts, in my opinion. And I, I include most drug therapy in that. I think that the kinds of drugs that we use are too powerful to be used casually. And we have gotten in the habit of using very potent, substances that produce immediate, very dramatic effects, and we pay a terrible price in toxicity. And I think that they have their place, but their place is in treating extreme conditions uh, where other methods will not succeed. And often patients with mild and intermediate conditions are just put right into that kind of treatment, and it never occurs to people to try gentler natural methods. So the kind of methods that I use, I always try things that, you know, that make sense to me to use gentle, mild methods first, and then if they fail, then you have the other things in reserve. That, that, that seems obvious that that's the way you go about stuff. But if you haven't been taught about the simple, mild methods or don't know that they exist or think that they're unreal or not important, then you can't apply them. Anyway, all that will change. By the way, as far as drugs go, I have a, an attitude which I guess sets me apart from most of the population, which is that I am deeply suspicious of putting any pharmaceutical drug into my body. But I wouldn't hesitate to try one of Sasha's new creations. <laughs> you know, I think that I, I think I, I like the idea of using drugs for changing consciousness and for learning about other modes of consciousness. I'm very suspicious of using them to treat disease, except as last resorts, because they limit options and they create too many dangers. Let me let me talk about one more area, and that is the the area of why another strategy that I think we have to consider is always exploring alternative ways 
I mean, as in, as in treating disease, there also should be interest in alternative ways of changing consciousness. That has been a lot of my work. A lot of what I've written about are experiences I've had of achieving other modes of consciousness without drugs. Often, you know, for me, the great value of drugs is to show possibilities. That I would never have believed that certain things were possible if I hadn't had drug experiences. But the great drawback of drugs is that they don't give you information about maintaining those experiences. And if you rely on them and take them too frequently, they begin not to work as effectively. I mean, that just seems to me a universal phenomenon. And I have no hesitation in saying that there are a whole lot of ways of being that I would never have believed in had I not had drug experiences. But, you know, what if they aren't there someday? I mean, what if however that comes about? I mean, what if the DEA suddenly decides that, they, that it is now possible to schedule drugs generically? I mean, what if they say all phenethylamines? No, you can't have any more. And what if they really get nasty about it, as people who are threatened can do? You know, in, in this area, the history of how irrational people can behave when you challenge their basic belief systems, you know, it's not nice to look at what they're capable of. You know, what if, what if they aren't there anymore? And if that's your only way of getting high, then you lose out. You know, what if for one reason or another you can't ever get another drug? You know, never get another good psychedelic. Well, I mean, one, one recourse of people is to take more toxic substances. I mean, that's, of course, one of the great follies of trying to regulate this area through criminal law and prohibitions, because if you deny people access to better drugs, they'll take worse ones. And there are ample examples of that. There was, uh, I don't know how many of you have encountered people who get high by using typewriter whiteout or PAM, PAM spray, but they exist. Uh, and you find them a lot in prisons. I mean, although in most prisons it's quite easy to get drugs, but if you deny people access, they'll find other things, and there are always other things. I just, I was giving a, a workshop in Phoenix last week, and, and there was a, a nurse there who worked in, was the chief nurse at a maximum security unit outside of Phoenix, and she said the major problem that they have run into recently, I've never heard of this before, is water intoxication. <laughs> that people who drink something like 20 or 30 liters of water in a space of two or three hours and become drunk. And this is their high because they can't get anything else. So there it is, you know, water. What are they going to do about that? <laughs> and it's probably, not very, it's probably not very good for you either, I would imagine. That's probably a pretty heavy physiological strain on the body to do that. But interesting that people will do this. You know, there is no way of stopping people from altering their consciousness. And many people like to do that with substances because they're so convenient. You know, they don't require work. One argument that I've heard parroted a lot over the years is, wouldn't it be wonderful if people could get high in natural ways instead of using drugs? Now, even the word natural is totally loaded, and you can make a great case that using drugs is quite natural, since, it, since they probably all work through intermediate uh, neurotransmitter systems in the brain. And uh, the discovery of endorphins seems to suggest that there's great logic in our going around munching up plants to see what they do to us. <laughs> but, you know, this argument, you know, here, when you say to people, what do you mean by natural? And they'll say, well, wouldn't it be great if well, we should teach people how to get high by meditating so they won't have to use nasty substances? What would happen? I wonder, I've always wondered, what would it be like if suddenly large numbers of kids in this society started seriously meditating? I think that would be very threatening to the dominant society. I think it would be as threatening, if not more so, than people taking drugs. Since, since we at least have a, t have a total cultural tradition of drug use, whereas we don't have a cultural tradition for meditation. You know, that's in other people's practice. So, you know, the, people say these things very glibly, but I don't think they think through the consequences. 
at any rate, it seems to me to make sense, I mean, as in treating illness, to have a, a large number of tricks in your bag, and that includes ways of changing your consciousness. I am quite convinced that all, you know, this is, this is a very Buddhist in conception, I think it's very New Age psychology, that we represent internally everything out there, and as a result can recreate everything out there. And I think that any experience that we have out there has an internal analog which can be called up, whether that's a, a, an electrical trace in the circuitry of the brain or a chemical memory, it's there and it can be called up by other methods. It is very important, whatever work we do with psychedelics, I think, and, and I certainly recommend this to individuals and to us as a group, to also explore other techniques of, other, of entry into these realms and other ways of exploring them, if only for the practical concern that I raised before, what if, for whatever reason, these things aren't there at some point? I mean, what if? <laughs> I, I could, if you're interested, a after I stop, I can tell you about some of the explorations I have done in that area recently. Uh, the one that I have been played with most in the past year is firewalking. I don't know whether how many of you have had a chance to experience that, but I've done it three times with uh, very different experiences. The first time I got mildly burned, and that was a 12-foot walk that you could cross in four steps. Uh, the second one was taught by somebody who had no business teaching it. Uh, it was an eight-foot walk that you could cross in three steps in a cooler fire, and he was absolutely unable to create the appropriate group energy, and it is group energy which is key to, to doing it successfully. And I, sh I was in much better physical condition on that occasion. And I got burned pretty badly. I, I was, it was made walking painful for three weeks. So I was not about to do it again. And I was invited last <laughs> February to try for a, a, the US record firewalk, which was going to be 40 feet. So I went up there. I was sick. I had the flu. I was, not, I was in terrible mental shape. And I went up there saying there was no way I was going to do this. I was going to watch. The, I got very caught up in the group energy. I found myself getting in line. 40 feet was very long. I, told myself that I would not do it unless I felt physically different, that I would have to feel that I was in some different state, and otherwise I'd be crazy to try it. About 10 seconds before my turn came to do it, I experienced something I've never felt without a drug, which was energy rushes around that started in my hands, rushed up my arms. At first I thought it was from hyperventilating, but it didn't have the, it, well, there was no tingling of the mouth, and, and then th this started going through my body and had a very strong vibrational quality. And that, to me, was a sign. I suddenly knew that it was okay to do it. And I walked over 40 feet of hotter coals than I'd walked previously, had no burns, and at the end got, was as high as I have ever been from taking LSD, including physical sensations, uh, euphoria. Now, that's not necessarily any more convenient <laughs> to do. <laughs> but at least there's something there, you know, if they take away LSD and take away the others. And there's a whole range of these things. You know, it's not... It does, that's just one possibility. There's lots of ways of doing this. There's lots of ways into it. And it's, it's important to have an expanded repertory of techniques of getting into the states of consciousness that you want. I think, again, you know, the value of the drugs as tools is to show you the territory. And you get it for free. When I first took, um, the first drug that I ever took, other than the ones that are tolerated in this society, was mescaline, long before I had ever smoked marijuana. I had a, uh, a friend, an older woman who was a, a Roman Catholic and taught uh, theology at Boston College. And I had known her for some time, and I, on the second occasion that I took mescaline, had what I thought was a mystical experience. And uh, I 
talk to her about it. And she was very tolerant. She listened and she said, and she had no interest in trying it herself. But she said that it, it fulfilled for her the criteria of what Roman Catholics call a gratuitous grace. And I think that's an interesting concept. You know, it's that you didn't work for it. It is a true grace that was given to you, a true dispensation. But you did no work for it. It's something that you got free and that you should use it. The fact that you didn't work for it is the problem with drugs as the only tool. And that's why they fail you with repetition. That's why the techniques that you work for hold up over time, although you don't get immediate effects from them. You know, the problem with meditation as a way of getting high is that you may have to do it for years before you get highs that are equivalent to highs that you can get with drugs. But the experience of all people who use those methods is that they get better with repetition, which is different from what you hear with people who use drugs very frequently. So those are the kinds of issues that I'm concerned with, and I'll stop there. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org. Until next time, be well.